0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All right, if everybody will just sort of simmer down, take a seat. I know it's, in case you didn't notice, it's a little warm in here. For those of you who did notice, you're probably, you know, more comfortable south of the border. But we'll manage to make it through the evening. Nothing, I I think, is more uncomfortable than trying to teach when you're in a sauna. I don't know how they did it in the old days. I remember that first June I went up to Preston City and I walked into church one day. I didn't notice anything and I started... We started morning service and started teaching and I thought, "You know, it just seems a little warm in here, but I didn't really pay attention to it and They had the windows open, no air conditioning and then twenty harleys went by. We just had to stop for a while, wait for wait for that noise to settle down, and then I began to sweat. I don't perspire, and I thought, Phew, man. We're gonna to have to change this. That was, that was a major culture shift for that part of the country. Alright. They got the sound fixed in the back. We have a couple of announcements. Morgan Franklin's stepmother died this morning at 3 a.m. California time and they're asking for prayers for the family. Also, we want to make sure that everybody knows that in light of the refugees from the hurricane, that we're continuing to uh, help out here with uh, White Oak Baptist Church. And we've got uh, various things that they are in need of. One thing they're in need of is some men who are willing to come down here and pull an all-nighter to uh, help out with just kind of security and anything that might come up. There's somebody local who's available who can do that. So if you are interested in uh, fitting into something like that, you can talk to Bob Beaver and... I think there's some other things that they need as well, so you can do that. Well, before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word this evening. We thank you that God the Holy Spirit indwells us and that he teaches us and that he makes your word clear to us. Father, we thank you that you have revealed things not just related to our own lives, our own spiritual life, our own salvation, but that you have given us information that explains how all the different dimensions of human life work together and interact and how society is supposed to function. and and various things that take place in culture through cultural deterioration so that we can understand all the dimensions of life through the lens of your word. Father, we pray that as we continue this study about Sodom and Gomorrah that you would give us insight into what happened and what the applications are in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 we're continuing our study on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Last time I pointed out that the major issue in this section is the righteousness of God. That came out at the end of chapter 18 when Abraham is talking to God about what he would what was how few the numbers should be before God would uh judge Sodom. If there were 50 believers then uh, would he still judge if there were Forty righteous would he still judge? If there were thirty righteous, he was trying to find that that uh, lowest common denominator, that lowest critical mass that could avoid the judgment of God. And he knew there weren't too many in Sodom. So the issue is the righteousness of God. And once man reaches certain stages of unrighteousness, then it is necessary for the justice of God to execute judgment in human history. The interesting thing when we look at the Scripture is the Scripture clearly interprets for us God's judgment at different points in history, and there is a reason for those judgments in history. We look at uh, the episode with the Tower of Babel, the episode with uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We see a certain amount of natural catastrophe at the end of Genesis when we, when we come to the famine that occurs. And so these things are, on the one hand, we know they're not random events. It's not just chance. We can look at this situation with uh, Hurricane Katrina, and we can say, on the one hand, it's not a biblical judgment in the sense that it's somehow related to uh, the nation Israel, although maybe in three or four years we might discern some connection. But on the other hand, we know that it isn't just random. God is not the God of deism, where he's just off in uh, outer space somewhere uh, with his hands folded in his lap, just watching things happen on the earth without some direct involvement. So there was a direct providential involvement, and God could just as easily have knocked that hurricane a little farther west or a little farther east, and it could have gone into... Baytown or Beaumont where it would have created a little, little less damage or it could have gone much further to the east or it could have just died down. So the fact that it went in where it did was a, had a divine purpose behind it. We may not discern all of them, but I'm certain that when you examine the culture of South Louisiana and the culture of New Orleans that there was a, a, an attribute of retribution there, of divine judgment. Here you have uh, all the voodoo stuff going on there. You have tremendous uh, sexual perversion, Mardi Gras. There was supposed to be the annual Southern Decadence Festival in New Orleans from August 31st to to September 5th, and uh, where all the uh, homosexuals were to gather and celebrate their gay lifestyle, uh, including a uh, division for those who were rather large. They call it the big and easy group. There was a time when we wouldn't even talk about this from the pulpit because it was such a shame in America, and I think that's one of the themes that I'm developing in this is that we have just lost a general sense of shame and embarrassment related to a number of sins in our culture, not that we should be prudish, And uh, not that we should run and hide from reality, but there is protocol. And as believers, we have a higher standard. And unfortunately, when we live in the midst of a pagan and a perverse culture, we get our feet dirty and sometimes our ankles dirty. And for some people, they're just wandering around, mired in the cosmic system up to their armpits, and this always has an impact on the church. And if you study anything about church history and understand the dynamics of culture surrounding a church, you realize that the church down through the ages has always imitated and mirrored the value system of the world system, the culture that surrounds it. And that's because we all come out of that. That's that's where we grow up. That's where we're indoctrinated through uh, the satanic uh, system and the world system. And so we imitate it. And it's the whole process of sanctification is to grow out of that. And that can only come through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, using uh, God's Word in our life. And But we have to be attuned to the fact that this is a major issue in our life. We are virtually brainwashed by the world system around us to think in certain ways, to have a certain value system. And it affects every single one of us. None of us is isolated. Even some of you have been around the church for a long time, been in Christian circles. You may have a, a measure of worldliness that is not necessarily Biblical, it's just conservative. You know, there's, worldliness doesn't have to be perverse. It can be, uh, self-righteous and conservative. There's a whole system of paganism that ends up in what we would call a comfortable conservatism, but it's not necessarily a biblical conservatism. So we all have to constantly evaluate our thinking to see how and if we are being influenced by the non-biblical values that float around in our society and that pressure us, and not the least of which comes from our own sin nature, which pressures us to somehow minimize the consequences and seriousness of sin because that's just the natural trend of the sin nature. And what we see with, with Lot is a classic example of a carnal Christian who is so in love with all the benefits of human society and human culture and that he has just become mired in cosmic thinking, so much so that even when he is being told by these angels, supernatural visitors, and he knows they're angels, that even though they show up on his doorstep, and he goes through this horrendous scene where the the men of Sodom from all walks of life and all the different social strata in, in Sodom try to capture these two men, take them out in the city square for a A gang rape overnight Uh, Even after all of that Lot can't be convinced That he needs to leave And even when he's told that God is about to wipe everything out The men almost have to The angels almost have to drag him And his wife Out of town And part of his family stays there And this shows how in arrogance And fallen man and carnal Christians Are in arrogance That in arrogance We don't want to face the reality of divine judgment and that sin causes serious consequences not only in our individual spiritual life but also in the culture and society and that we have to take strong stands at times that may not always be the most comfortable thing. So we got through the introduction to this in the first 11 verses last time. We looked at Lot's generosity and hospitality to the visiting angels. Now, He's in carnality, he's not he's not uh, in fellowship with the Lord, so this is not divine good, this is just human good. And he invites them into his house and he feeds them and prepares a feast for them. And it's very similar to the way they were treated by Abraham at the beginning of chapter 18, which was just earlier in the day. These two angels have eaten well. This day. You know, that, just wanted to point that out to you. They had, Abraham killed the fatted calf and now Lot had, they are being fed very well. And by nighttime, when they're about ready to go to sleep in verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. So we see that this is not just one social segment. It pervades all of Sodom culture. Now, last time I put this map up on the screen to show you the location of Sodom. Now, Hebron, where Abraham is living, is over in this area uh, right here, over where you have Hakilah mentioned here. It's over about where the right bottom leg of that H is. That would be Hebron. And Sodom is over here at a location called bab ed which is located on this peninsula It's been excavated a good bit by archaeologists today, probably hosted a population of some 10,000, had walls around the city that were 23 feet thick and indicated that it was a fairly wealthy city for its time period. And there's also evidence that it was destroyed by fire, that the houses burned from the inside out, as the fire from heaven, as the sulfur and brimstone that that probably was exploded out of the earth and then rained down upon the roofs of these houses. There's some indication of that in the geology of the area, that this burned through the roofs and then burned the houses from the inside out. This was, at the time, some of the most beautiful real estate in all of the ancient world. And, of course, everybody wanted to live there. Including Lot Then we saw that they have this situation Where the men of Sodom attempt to rape Have a sexual assault on the angels And this is covered uh, It starts in verse 4 And extends down through verse 7 And Lot tries to bargain Tries to negotiate with them And he goes outside And he pleads with them not to act so wickedly. And he, instead he bargains with his daughters. And I pointed out last time that this is one of, the, one of the evidences of paganism is that there's no respect for people as people created in the image of God. What happens is you have a breakdown in the respect for women. And somebody came up to me, and, uh, gave, and I don't remember who told me this story, but it illustrates this, that after or during World War II, after the American army went into North Africa, and after we defeated the Germans, that that the uh, Arabs would go out to plow the field, and because there were so many mines planted in the fields, that in order to make sure they didn't run their plow over a mine, they would put their wives and daughters out there in front of the plow so that they could uh, walk the furrow in front of them, and if there's a mine, they would step on it, and they wouldn't uh, hurt the plow horse or mule or donkey or whatever they used. And this just is a modern example of how in culture after culture, the more divorced you are from Scripture, the lower the view of women is usually in the society. And this is typical of paganism, and men no longer protect women. In fact, they abuse women in all sorts of ways. So here's Lot, and he's willing to trade his daughters uh So that these guests don't get raped, you can have my daughters. And then uh, the angels, of course, take a stand and they reach out and pull Lot back in the house in verse 10. And they struck the men who were at the doorway, that is all the sodomites, uh, with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. What a picture. There must have been... Several hundred, maybe as many as a thousand out there in this huge mob trying to get in this house and all of a sudden none of them can see. They've all been blinded by these angels and they can't find the door. They, they're just in this complete state of confusion. And, and then in verse 12, the men began to, the angels began to warn, uh, They began to warn Lot Now before we get there, last time I pointed out some basic characteristics of paganism that we've seen And the first was that there is sexual degradation and perversion Which becomes commonplace and socially acceptable It becomes normal And today, especially with the internet, this has just become a real plague and serious problem in this nation, the problems with pornography. And the impact that this has on marriages and on families and on the development of young adolescents who have access to this is unbelievable the uh, unintended uh, consequences or the collateral damage that this occurs inside the soul as it destroys a person's capacity for love, because all sexual degradation and perversion, uh, pornography, all of this, is all designed just for a personal gratification. And the emphasis in all this is just on one's own personal uh, pleasure And God's design for sex was something that was to be shared as a celebration between two people as an act of love. And there's a radical difference between genuine love of one person for another in sharing together in intimacy versus just being engaged in an act for personal gratification. And what happens when you have uh, any kind of sexual sin, whether it involves homosexuality or uh, adultery or uh, fornication outside of marriage, it's ultimately designed for personal pleasure and personal uh, satisfaction. It is self-oriented. It is, therefore, the opposite of love, and it causes a breakdown in a person's capacity for love. Because the emphasis is just on uh, my own personal pleasure and taking care of my own needs. A second point that I, uh, second observation is that women are no longer protected. We've already mentioned that. Third observation is that there there, as a result of this, there's a breakdown of role distinctions, and you see this. It's an interesting correlation in our society in the last. Uh, 40 or 50 years since the mid-60s, you had the rise of both the radical feminist movement and you had the rise of the, quote, gay rights movement. I had a seminary professor who said they're not gay, they're sad. He always called them the sads. You had the rise of the, the sodomite agenda and the feminist agenda. Now, the, the, the subtext in the feminist agenda is that men and women are totally interchangeable. They're totally interchangeable in their roles, and they're at work, in the workplace, and they're interchangeable at at home in the marriage. So you have this uh, espousal of total equality in, in the home. And the Scripture says, no, that's not true. Men and women are equal before God. They're equal as persons. They're equally created in the image and likeness of God. But the husband is the leader in the home, and the woman is designed by God to assist, to be a helper in the marriage and in the relationship to help the man fulfill his God-given responsibilities and direction. And so there is an authority structure inside the home. But once you buy into the idea of interchangeability, then all of a sudden... The emphasis is on the husband and the wife are equal partners. There's no longer an authority structure within the home. And before long, what happens is women begin to take over because, as we've seen in the last 20 years, you'll have a lot of uh, marriages, a lot of situations where women bring home more money than the husband does. Now, that's not necessarily wrong in itself, but the but the the temptation that that brings is all of a sudden for the woman to think that because she brings home one hundred thousand dollars a year and the husband 's only bringing home thirty that she 's going to make all the decisions because she uh, has the purse strings, and so we have to be careful of these things that this is not going to influence the way we think, and it also affects sexuality because if men and women become interchangeable then men can become interchangeable with women and women can become interchangeable with men so it doesn't matter whether it's a man and a man and a woman in a marriage or a man and a man or a woman and a woman and so the trend is to a complete breakdown in marriage and you start having one, one report i've read recently is that uh is that you don't have uh, as high a divorce rate as we used to have and the reason is because fewer and fewer people are getting married. They just go out and they live together, and then when they decide to go their separate ways after five or six years, they don't have to file for a divorce. And, of course, more and more reports have come out recently which substantiate what we've always said from the Scripture, and that is that uh, the divorce rate among those who live together before they get married is higher than that of those who just get married. So you have to follow the biblical establishment pattern, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're going to have a solid, stable marriage. So the third point I hit last week as we closed was a breakdown of role distinctions, evidence of men assuming male authority positions is lost, and excuse me, that should be women assuming male authority positions. You can tell I didn't. Go back and proof that slide from last time. Women assuming male authority positions such as pastor or in bisexuality, many different areas, you have a breakdown of those roles. So now let's see what happens to a believer that gets mired in the cosmic system. The angels warn Lot in verse 12. Have you anyone else here? Who's here in your family? you got a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, where are they? Whoever you have in this city, take them all out. Here's your opportunity to get out of Sodom. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has gone great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. How much more clear can it be? It's, it's just like last week when the uh, uh, governor and the mayor in Louisiana told people to get out, and people don't want to get out, even today with... Eight nine feet of water in their houses. People don't want to leave. I can't fathom this. These people, but they didn't. Lot ran into the same thing. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters, and said, "Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city." So these sons-in-law in in verse fourteen are married to other daughters than the two daughters who are virgin daughters in verse eight. Every year somebody asks me about this. Well, wait a minute, isn't this is a contradiction? He's got two daughters who haven't known a man in verse 8, and then you get down to verse 14, and he has sons-in-law who had married his daughters. He's got at least four daughters, two that haven't been married and two or more that, ha- that are married. And he warns them and says, get up, get out of the place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. See, this is what happens in the world system. They reject God, and when God is removed, there's no sense of accountability. And we it happens in subtle ways to believers. We think, well, God, I got away with it the last time. I'll get away with it this time. And before long, we're no longer concerned about God interfering in our life in terms of judgment. God becomes a joke, and that's what happens in the world system. They ignore the fact that there is a God with, to whom they are accountable, and so God becomes a joke, something to poke fun at. And so in the morning dawn, in verse 15, the angel urged Lot to hurry. Notice, they have to push him. The city's getting ready to be judged, and he's just, well, I'm not sure I want to leave. You know, this is home. I've been here for... Twenty years now and I'm very comfortable and this is where all my favorite objects are, and I've still got daughters here, and they have to urge him because what happens is when the more we we fail to separate ourselves mentally and emotionally from the ideas of the cosmic system, the more of an attraction it becomes, and the more difficult it is to leave. So they have to They're warned again by the angels, Take your wife your daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, they have to urge him, he's lingering, and again the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters. Notice the reminder, the Lord being merciful to him. This is grace to get him out of there, and he doesn't want to respond to it. And this is what happens to so many people. We have such grace in this country, yet people refuse to look to God. We saw the same thing after after 9-11, 2001. A lot of people had this show of turning back to God. And for a couple of weeks, there were a few more people in some churches. There was a lot of God talk, a lot of religious activity, just like there was a lot of patriotism, a lot of flag-waving, a lot of... Uh, speeches were made and people talked about it, but within six months all that died down and people were living pretty much the way they had before and they didn't give any account to uh, what had happened or the lessons learned. In fact, they didn't learn any lessons and they just kept right on living and f- began to forget all about what had happened on September 11th. This is the way the carnal mind operates. It's, it's divorced from reality. Arrogance blinds us to the truth. And we live in our, a world of our own making, and we refuse to accept the fact that God is involved at all in the creation. So the angels have to grab him, grab his wife's hands, and the hands of the two daughters. So we've got two angels, four hands, Lot, his wife, two daughters. Their hands are full, and you can just see them dragging them out of the city. So it came to pass, verse 17, that they brought them outside, and and he, that is one of the angels, said, Escape for your life, don't look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. In other words, keep your focus on where God's taking you, and don't look back, because a look back is going to indicate a mental attitude that you just really don't want to leave, the, the sin and the perversion and everything that Sodom stood for. So they're warned not to look back lest you be destroyed. The point here is when God in His grace delivers you, don't look back. It's the same sin that the Jews are going to commit later on. This is foreshadowing. What was the sin committed later on? God took the Jews out of Egypt. They got out in the wilderness. He's providing manna for them. He's providing... Uh, water for them. He's taking care of all their, their clothes. Nothing's going to wear out. They don't have to rely upon FEMA or any other government agency to take care of them in the 40 years in the wilderness. And then, uh, then he's going to, he, God is going to provide completely, uh, uh for them. But what did they do? They complained, they griped. Let's go back to Egypt. We miss the leeks, the garlics. We miss all that good food. Kind of reminds me about when I was in. Connecticut and complained about not getting mexican food it 's the same principle you just want to go back to what 's comfortable, and when what 's comfortable is sin, when what is comfortable is carnality, then it has damaging consequences and that 's what we have here in verse seventeen don 't look behind or stay lest you be destroyed. And Lot begs them, no, no, don't destroy us. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. He recognizes this. It's more of a figure of speech than a reality. He's not suddenly found grace orientation. He says, if we found favor in your sight, you've increased your mercy which you've shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. I I I want to avoid the judgment, but don't get me too far away from this. And he just can't comprehend that this whole plane is going to be unlivable. And so he just wants to bail out. He wants to get far enough away from the sin to where he doesn't get roasted. But he doesn't want to leave it. There's no, no what the Bible calls genuine repentance, a change of thinking about his life. And so he sees this little town. And it is a little town. That's why it's called Little or Zoar. Says, See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there, and my soul shall live. And he, that is the angel, said to Lot, See, I favored you concerning this thing, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. So escape there. I cannot do anything until you arrive. So he had to get into a place of safety, I guess under a roof, and then the judgment was going to come. And so the judgment then occurred And when the sun came up, and this is the next day. Remember, the day before in the afternoon was when the two angels and the Lord visited Abraham. So it's all within the same 24-hour period. The sun rose upon the earth. When Lot entered Zoar, then the Lord rained brimstone, that's fiery sulfur and fire, on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord of the heavens. So he overthrew the cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, And what grew on the ground wiped out the whole area, so it's just devastated. Now let's stop and pick up some principles. What happens to a believer that's mired or enmeshed in the cosmic system? How? What are the dynamics of this? Well, first of all, we have to to define the cosmic system. This is from the Greek word "cosmos," which refers to an orderly system of thinking, and the best analogy I use to try to just bring it home is the cosmic thought is the cultural values of the community, the world around us, whatever that is, whatever it may be in the Texas, in the South, in the North, in America, in India, ...Europe and Russia and Africa, every people group, every culture has its views about life, its views about ultimate reality... ...and its views about ultimate reality or God affect its values. Values are displayed in terms of laws, in terms of social institutions, in terms of marriage, family, government... ...all of these things flow out of your view of ultimate reality... And so this then develops itself out into other areas of what we often think of as culture, in terms of music, uh, visual arts, uh, theater, dramatic arts, all of these things. All of that is part of the cosmic system. There is a worldview that is antithetical to a biblical worldview. And the cosmic system is basically the thinking Of Satan, and we have, we're not going to take the time, but we'd go to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 to work out the fundamentals of Satan's thinking. Fundamental number one is it's antagonistic to God. Satan wanted to be God in Instead of God, he wanted to make up his own mind, set up his own rules, his own regulations, his own laws. So the cosmic system is first and foremost antagonistic to God, no matter how much God talk there is. No matter how much people hold up their Bible, go to church, go through ritual, genuflect, sing praise and worship for 45 minutes. No matter how much you do that, it's just human works. It's just just a salve on the conscience. At the very core, though, because it's not biblical... It is antagonistic to God. Now, this is something we have to understand. Something is either biblical and drive-on positive to God, or it's not. It's antagonistic. There's no kind of quasi-neutrality. And see, we often convince ourselves, we know somebody, they come to church once every three or four weeks, or every time on Sunday, and they talk about God, and they have basically right beliefs, but there's no real drive forward in their spiritual life. Is that person positive? I wouldn't think so. I'm kind of hard on things like this. No, they're not, because they're not going anywhere. Positive means that you understand the truth and you want to know the truth and you want to grow forward, go forward in your spiritual life. And you run into this often, I I see this with parents, you know, they're just so concerned about their kids, they're going to college, they're doing this and they're doing that, but they're not going to church, they're not going to Bible class, they're not getting doctrine anywhere. Yeah, they believe the right things or say they believe the right things, but it's not evident in anything going on in their life. Well, that's because they're antagonistic to God. They're not going to come right up and shake their fist in God's face, but they're not positive either. The reality of God and Bible doctrine isn't affecting their day-to-day decision-making at all. They're just out there on the periphery. Well, that's negative volition. It's a mild form of negative volition. It's somewhat anemic. It's not like uh, some um, fire-breathing atheist who's marching on... Uh, churches on Sunday Or anything like that But it's still antagonistic to God Because it's not positive to God and the second element of cosmic thinking Is that it is autonomous Towards man And autonomy is a word that means Self-law Man ultimately decides for himself And it's an emphasis That God you just stay out of it I'm going to lead my own life I'm going to make up my own decisions About what's right and what's wrong, and I may know what the Bible says, and I may understand that certain things are wrong and immoral and unbiblical, but, you know, somehow grace is going to cover and it's all going to work itself out in the end, and I'm going to just live my own life and do it my way, and somehow it will work out. Well, that's pure autonomy. That's not any different from Eve sitting there saying, well, I've got to determine whether God is speaking the truth or not. Okay, this is at the core of the cosmic system. Therefore, the cosmic system always generates hostility towards the Bible and its establishment principles. You can't get away from it. It always generates hostility towards the truth. You see it in churches. This is why churches have big splits and big fights, because there's often, hopefully, there's one group that is more biblical than the other group, and that creates a division within the congregation. In fact, Paul points that out, that sometimes this is good for there to be church fights because it reveals the ones who are clearly hostile to the truth. Second point, this this antagonism to the Word can be overt or subtle. Overt is is a clear antagonism. Or rejection of the word. It's a clear antagonism or rejection of the word. Or negative volition can be masked as a religion or just a kind disregard. You know, they're, they're going to go to church, they might even take notes, but it has no impact on their thinking whatsoever. Doesn't affect one value in their life. They just, they, in fact, you look at a person's life and they go to church, but they don't live any different from the unbeliever down the street now they the unbeliever down the street may be nice he may be socially involved he may have a great personality he may give a lot to uh, civic causes and be involved in things but he's still operating on pure paganism and you may you know Christians like that they just show up here and there and they sing songs and it's all external There's just this shell, but they're not learning to think biblically. Third point, but negative volition is anything short of being genuinely positive. Are you driving forward in your spiritual life? Is there still a hunger in your soul to know what God says and to live for Him because of where you're headed? That's positive volition. Now, when you're a young believer, you may have fits and starts, and and uh, we all have gone through that. And there are days when, and if we're all honest, that we're a little less positive than other days. Because we have a sin nature, and we all fail, and we get out of fellowship, and we go through those times when we're not as uh, positive as we know we should be. And that's why we have 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. And we, we keep coming to Bible class, and that feeds us. And sometimes we... Uh, we struggle with that, even as we grow older, because I think there are different times and stages in Christian growth where we we get, we get come to Bible class for different reasons. When we're young, I find that, that you come to Bible class because you want answers to your questions. How do I know this is true? How do I know God, Christ really rose from the dead? How can I really believe this? And many times you'll see young people in their 20s and early 30s, and they come because they want answers to life's questions. Once they get their questions answered, now they have to come for a different reason. Oh, we come because of the kids. You know, we want the kids to learn. We want them going to Sunday school, prep school. We want them learning, exposed to the things of God, so we'll bring them. And all of a sudden what's happening is their own positive volition starts to falter. They're going through the motions, and they're involved, and they're hearing it, but it's no longer driving them, and they sort of plateau. And then the kids leave home. Go off to college and they have the empty nest syndrome, so let's go get an RV and we're going to drive around the country and uh, travel a lot. And we're no longer involved in the local church. That's no longer something that's, uh, that's, that's important to us. Getting doctrine every single day isn't what it's all about anymore. Next thing you know, they're not any different from the people down the street. They have this residual holdover From those early years, but that's all it is now. They're just they're they're running on fumes in their in their spiritual life. They've become complacent, and they think that just because they can affirm a proper doctrinal statement, that they're still going somewhere spiritually. Fourth point: Like Lot, the negative believer seeks to enjoy all the benefits of the present cosmic system, without paying attention to God. We want to enjoy all that the culture has to offer us. And we're going to go out and party and we're going to be involved with And there's nothing wrong with d- enjoying different elements of the culture. It's when that is the heartbeat of your life as opposed to doctrine that you run into problems. Fifth point, one result is that there will eventually be an internal conflict of guilt. If you are a born-again believer... And a child of God, and the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit isn't going to allow you just to float on down the road in carnality. He is going to constantly remind you of doctrine, and the Lord is going to discipline you, according to Hebrews chapter 12, 7 and following, uh, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And you're not going to get away with it. If the norms and standards are there, God, the Holy Spirit, will never let the child of God just drift. But six, there will appear a superficial rapport with the world. And that's the struggle that Lot has. He has this great affinity for everything in Sodom because he's a sinner and his sin nature is attracted to that. But because he doesn't have any doctrine in his soul, he, he, he can become comfortable. But at points, he's not comfortable. That's what First Peter uh, 2 pointed out last time that we, that we examined. His righteous Lot was uncomfortable. But he would just kind of cover that over. And that is just creating a callousness in the soul towards the doctrine. But we are called upon as believers to live in a way that is separate from the world. Now the trouble is you get too many believers who take this doctrine of separation in a self-righteous way. So you have to watch that line, that that you don't take it self-righteously. This is designed to protect your soul from the subtle influences of cosmic thinking around you and it is addressed, addressed to the social life of believers. It involves marriage, it involves business, it involves your closest friends and confidants. Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship or rapport has righteousness with lawlessness? Righteousness is the believer trying to live according to the norms and standards of God's Word. Lawlessness, in other p- passages, anomia, is sin. So what fellowship does righteousness have with sin? You are a righteous believer just as Lot was righteous. It's positional righteousness, but he has trying to have rapport with unrighteousness. And then we go on to read these rhetorical questions of Paul. And what communion has light with darkness? See, it's clear. There's, there, there's no correlation here. Or what accord does Christ have with Belial? Belial was a... Uh, an idol related to destruction, the sons of Belial, was a Hebrew idiom for the sons of destruction. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? See, now, isn't the, he just drives it home in that last phrase. There is no significance to, a, no value in a relationship between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have... Friends that are unbelievers, you need to have some friends that are unbelievers so you can build relationships and witness to them and give them the gospel. But those who are your most intimate, valued friends, partners, wives, husbands, need to be believers. You want to mess up your spiritual life if you're single, just start dating unbelievers and end up marrying an unbeliever. It always is, it's just self-destructive in the spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. This is just a standard proverb that Paul quotes. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sooner or later, if you surround yourself with people who aren't positive, who aren't operating on divine viewpoint... Sooner or later, they are going to drag you down and you're going to be influenced and your spiritual life is going to be degraded because of them. And that's what's going on with Lot. 1 Corinthians five ten and 11 is an even more difficult passage for us. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about discipline and not having... Uh, any relationship or association with believers who are overtly, consciously practicing certain sins. And in verse 1 Corinthians 5.10, he, he said, or in verse 9 earlier, which I don't have on the screen, he, he said, remember I told you not to associate with people who were immoral or the covetous or the extorters. He says, I didn't mean... He says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extorters or idolaters, that is, as unbelievers. See, if I told you not to associate it with the the, uh, sinners who are unbelievers, then you wouldn't have anybody to witness to. I wasn't talking about that. Verse 11, he says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother—that is, someone who claims to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ—who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, Paul's not being self-righteous here. Paul is recognizing a principle that he was the same principle he, he outlines in First Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. Bad company corrupts good morals. And if you as an individual associate with a, with, with unbelievers who have a relativistic standard of morality, it is going to drag you down. So he says don't be involved with those who claim to be Christians, but they're licentious, they're antinomian, they they are uh, sexually immoral, this involves uh, sex outside of marriage when you are not married, or covetous, that is somebody who is operating on materialism, lust, and greed all the time, or an idolater, or a reviler, someone who is constantly making somewhat blasphemous statements about God or, divine things, or the truth, or a drunkard. We could add someone who's involved in drugs or an extortioner, someone who's involved in illegal activity. Don't get involved. Why? Number one, it's self-protection. You don't want to get involved with them because they're going to drag down your spiritual life. And the second reason, the whole context of 1 Corinthians 5 has to do with the local church that if the local church doesn't take a stand for for a certain standard of behavior among the believers who are associated with that congregation, then the, what they won't look to the outside world, to the unbelievers, any different from any other pagan temple. So the church has to take a stand, and when there is known overt sin that is going on, I don't mean that you go around looking for it, I don't mean that if you hear about it, you report it to everybody else in the congregation, but there are certain things that become known. And when they become known, they have to be dealt with. That's the basis for what's called church discipline. And sometimes it's necessary, just in privacy, to talk to somebody who's got a problem or is engaged in some activity, and sometimes it's a young believer and they just don't know any better. Sometimes it's an older believer and his activities have become known. And it creates a division, and I know of a couple of cases in this town where pastors have had to talk to people in congregations and say, you know, you're just not welcome anymore. You can listen to tapes, and you can get your spiritual food that way, if that's what it takes, but your very presence in this congregation is disruptive. And I've had to do that, and it's never easy. But this is what 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about. You can't allow antinomian or licentiousness To degrade the standards of the Word of God. Furthermore, seventh, eventually the scale of values becomes perverted. This is what happens. Once you start turning your, turning a blind eye to these things, it begins to degrade and erode your own sense of absolutes and compromise sense in. So the scale of values becomes perverted, right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right. Good becomes bad, and bad becomes good. This is what Isaiah five, mentioned in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, what happens in carnality and in paganism is the scale of values, the scale of absolutes, moral, morality and ethics becomes totally perverted and reversed. And this is why you get the kind of reaction that Lot did when he started to, uh, plead with the uh, men of Sodom. They stood back and said, look at him. They ridicule him. Look at him. He keeps acting as a judge. He's trying to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And they become the victims of uh, slander and ridicule. And this is what happens to many Christians today because they take a stand for the truth and that there is something called the truth. Micah 5 verse 2, Micah tells the Jews, you, have, you, you who hate good, and love evil, who tear off the skin from their flesh and the flesh from the bones, indicating that your perverted scale of values is self-destructive. Point eight, this results in a loss of respect for life, for people, as people in the image of God, genuine compassion for those who hurt. And this is why I've had a couple of people ask me, well, what is our responsibility as believers in relation to the refugees from the hurricane. And I said they're creatures in the image of God at no fault of their own. They've lost everything. I got a good report from uh, one individual uh, from Pine Valley who went down on uh, Saturday to the Dome and said he had a tremendous uh, Response. He went down with some tracks, witnessed to a number of people down there, had a very respectful hearing, didn't talk to anybody down there who didn't have a job. That's not saying there aren't some that don't, but he didn't talk to anybody who didn't have a job. He was impressed with the fact that most of them seemed to be uh, hardworking individuals who had a pretty decent scale of values and had had an opportunity to witness to quite a number of people. And it's our responsibility. James chapter 2 talks about the fact that, that we can't just say, well, be warm and be filled and go your way. That we should be involved helping people who are in genuine need. Christianity has always been there. Christian organizations were at the forefront, uh, last Tuesday after this disaster hit. It was, it's Christian, Christ, it's in the history of Christianity, it was Christians who began hospitals. It's Christians who began charities. It's Christians that began orphanages. You don't have the development of any of these things in Islam because there's no, there's no love in Allah, as I pointed out before. There's no, there's no basis for compassion and mercy. It's only Christianity that produces compassion for hurting people and a desire to care and to provide for them. And in the process of giving them, things that meet their physical needs, give them the gospel, give them spiritual truth, give them something that relates to the eternal problem. Don't fall into this trap of thinking, well, I'm only going to give them the gospel, or like the liberal, well, I'm going to feed and clothe them, but then you don't give them anything of real value. We should feed and clothe and help where we can, and at the same time give them that which has eternal value. Okay, a ninth result of believers that get mired in the cosmic system is you start seeing role reversal. Role reversal in sex, role reversal in marriage, role reversal in churches where you want to have women as deacons and women as elders and women as pastors. And this is all a sign of the influence of paganism in our culture. A tenth sign, sexual sin no longer brings shame. Sexual sin no longer brings A sense of shame because we have been, uh, our sense of right and wrong is being calloused by the fact that we're always exposed to this uh, talk in the culture around us. And then 11th sign is that personal comforts become more real and valuable than truth. See, this is what happens in in, uh, so many marriages. People aren't really living in a marriage where they're growing together. What matters is their own personal comfort. It's just some way to feed what I want, and somehow you get what you want out of this, and we're going to call this a marriage. That's not a biblical marriage at all, where you have two people growing together in love with each other, sharing with one another, and growing together in maturity in their relationship with the Lord. Okay, let's get back to wrapping up the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord overthrows the cities in verse 25, and in the process what happens? Lot's wife looks back. She's mired in the cosmic system. She just can't see the value of of the Lord's grace, and she wants everything back there. So she turns to look one more time. She just can't get her mental attitude out of her carnal value system. And so she is... Punished, She turns into a pillar of salt God takes her out on the sin and to death right there Then the scene shifts in verse 27 Abraham goes out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain And he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace There had been grace before judgment But then there was judgment Point number one, under grace before judgment, no sin is too great for the grace of God. Even those in Sodom could have turned to the Lord up to this point. Remember, they had some common grace from the Lord back in chapter 15 when they are rescued after they were defeated by the uh, four kings from the east under the Keter-Laomer alliance. But now it's time for judgment. Point number two, God still protects the disobedient believer. Even when he's out of fellowship and living in the pig pen, God is still watching over the prodigal son because you're in the family. But eventually it becomes time for the sin unto death. But to point number three, there's always forgiveness. If you're still alive, God has a plan for your life. You can use 1 John 1.9 to get back in fellowship, but the issue then is to stay in fellowship, to grow, to mature, to start applying doctrine and get out of the pig pen. Not just to, you know, get out and take a shower and then jump back in. See, that's what happens with a lot of people. They think that confession, which is cleansing, is a be-all and end-all in itself. But all confession is is getting out of the pig pen and taking a shower. What happens so often is people get out, take a shower, and jump right back in, and they spend most of their Christian life in this cycle where they confess and get cleansed and jump right back into the Pigpen of the world system And they never advance Because they're really not positive They just want to make sure They're not going to go to the lake of fire Fourth point Forgiveness doesn't necessarily erase the consequences Of an impoverished and a perverted soul And if there's no change through doctrine Then the soul remains impoverished and perverted And there's no happiness And there's no capacity for life Fifth point Cosmic thinking Destroys the divine institution. It destroys the family. And that's exactly what we see in the next episode in verse 30. Now here are a couple of slides of modern day Bob Edra where we see that it's absolutely uninhabitable desert, which is the location of where uh, these beautiful cities were once located. Now we see how it destroys the family because we have this just bizarre episode in verses 30 to 38, and we see that Lot never learns anything, and his daughters didn't learn anything. They're so immersed in the pagan values and thoughts of Sodom and Gomorrah that they finally uh, uh, get involved in this horrendous sin. Verse 30 says, Lot went up out of Zoar, which is where he took refuge, the little town, went up to the mountain. See, that's where the angels wanted to take him to begin with, but he couldn't couldn't get away from the attractions of the cities But what happened? They got destroyed There wasn't anything there anymore So he finally went up into the mountains He and his two daughters were with him For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar And they go up and they're living in a cave And the firstborn says to the younger Our father is old There's no man on earth to come into us As is the custom of all the earth That's a euphemism for uh, sexual activity in other words, what they're saying is, we're too old, there's nobody around, everybody's been destroyed, we're not going to have children, so let's get our father drunk. Sort of overtones of Noah getting drunk earlier. Let's get him drunk, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And so in their perversity, they get him drunk, and one night one daughter uh, seduces the father, and the next night the other daughter seduces the father, and they both become pregnant verse thirty six thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. and he is the father of the Moabites to this day, and the younger son uh, the younger daughter, she also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami, which means the son of my father. He is the father of the people called Ammon to this day. So the next time you're talking about the city of Ammon, Jordan, which is where that comes from. Ammon is from Ammon because that's the area of the Ammonites, you know where they came from. You know, this is the result of this incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. So this is where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. And they are going to be a a real pain for Israel in coming years. And remember, where are the Jews when, when they read this, when Moses writes this? They're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the land. And so now they read this and they understand why they've had problems with the king of Moab and the king of Haman and all this uh, inter-family rivalry. It's, it's like a soap opera. See, God doesn't hide anything from us. He just presents everyone um, warts and all. All right, next time we'll come back. Hopefully it won't be as warm. Uh Everybody seems to have survived. We don't have any heat exhaustion. We'll come back next time and we'll uh, wrap up this study with what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. We need to be armed and understand this in our culture today. Uh, every now and then we, we're going to get in conversations with people who are just misinformed and uh, we need to understand some truth because we need to teach our children, we need to be informed, we need to have a know the facts because we need to have that that uh, mental grid up every time we're watching movies or news reports or interviews or talk shows or whatever it may be, and the, the subtle lies and myths of our culture just, just slip in there, and we have to be prepared by the truth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by its truth, to recognize that your grace... Uh, extends so much to us, no matter how sinful we are, no matter how far, far we get away from you, you continue to reach to us in grace, but nevertheless, there comes a time when we run out of grace and there's a time for judgment and discipline. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study as we look at this because we recognize, as Peter says, by, by considering these things, we think about the fact that there will be a future judgment, future accountability. And we need to be prepared. This is a warning to us as believers to take Your Word seriously and a warning to our culture to take Your Word seriously. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.